My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In the following two episodes, I consider the subjects of international law. Subjecthood in international law is controversial. Controversial because it creates a series of responsibilities and rights for particular actors. Now, who are these actors? Of course, based on everything that you've learned so far, we know that nation states are actors. But then there are other actors who influence global politics that may or may not be subjects of international law. International organizations, individuals, transnational corporations, rebel groups, the list goes on and on. In the following two episodes, we will examine who are the subjects of international law and why. Um, all right, let's go ahead and uh, proceed. Uh, so, brief recap. We are now in week four. So week four, week one, we looked at the nature of international law, international law being distinct then from other forms of law. Week two, we went into the history of international law, examination of colonialism, that dynamic of difference that was established between different civilizations, creating a hierarchy, those that were superior, that were meant to be standardized, and those that were inferior, that were effectively meant to be eliminated. In. We also considered a little bit then on legal theory at that time. In week three, we moved on into the sources of international law. Vital session to understand when dealing with international law, what in fact are we dealing with? We know about treaties and customary international law. These are both sources of international law, but there are different constructs all around, different rules pertaining to how they are established. We also considered a little bit then around the role of publicists. We went into a bit on negotiations that international has built around consent, which is distinct then from other forms. Now this week we are moving into actors of international law or subjects of international law. And we begin with an important question then. To who does international law apply? So who does international law apply? So framed differently, who are the subjects of international law? Now this is um, an important question. We're looking then to the subjects. We're looking to who then is bound by international law. And it's an important question because there is no, within international law itself, there is no formal criteria by which we bestow international legal personality. There is no formal criteria. So similar to the way we said that when it comes to international lawmaking, there are no specific rules about how international law is made. There is that element to it. Well, similar when it comes to the actors, the subjects, there, is no, there are no criteria, no rules that grant international legal personality. So what we are then required to do is largely to extrapolate from the workings of international law who qualifies and who does not as a subject, who is bound. 
Now what we do then to identify the subjects of international law is look to the rights and the duties. The rights and the duties. So who bears any rights within international law? Who has certain duties, obligations that they must carry out according to international law? And based upon that, we can extrapolate then legal personality within the international system. Now some of you might recall what we said last week in relation to sources, that when it comes to treaties, it's rather straightforward who has the rights, who possesses the rights and the obligations. Well, the parties to the treaties. And that is very simple if you have a bilateral agreement involving two states. Very simple if we have a multilateral agreement involving many states. We know that all of those parties have acquired through the negotiations and the formalization of this treaty certain rights and certain obligations. And they are bound by it via the treaty or by contract. So we know that. But we also know that international laws that do not resemble treaties, international laws that resemble forms of legislation, such as human rights treaties, are far more difficult to implement as there is some uncertainty around who possesses the rights and more importantly, who possesses the obligations. Very clear when we have a treaty because you are a party to it. <coughs> Not so clear when that treaty looks like legislation. So the question then is who is going to bring a claim and against whom? <coughs> Now we know that nation states sign treaties and nation states bind themselves to certain human rights obligations. So relatively straightforward to say a state then, a nation state, is a subject of international law. A nation state has certain obligations under international law. That much is clear. The same is true also for international organizations. The United Nations possesses some form of legal personality and is therefore bound in some ways by international law. Now here's a question for you. Individuals. Are individuals subjects of international law? Are individuals bound by it? Do they have any rights under international law? All right, so we start with that then. We'll begin and say that we have in the first instance, individuals can make human rights claims. So they are owed certain rights under international law. So at least in terms of the first part, we see that they are capable of possessing rights. Are they capable of possessing responsibilities as well? Okay, so this is an interesting case that's being represented, but here, so we know then that there is the potential for an individual to benefit from some rights within international law, but is it possible for an individual to also possess responsibilities and therefore toward whom? And the answer is an interesting one. Consider it through the lens of international criminal law. And within international criminal law, individuals can be held accountable 
for breaches that they commit. So we see then that at least we know for certain the states are subjects of international law. We know that international organizations are subjects of international law. And we know that under certain circumstances, individuals are also subjects of international law. And yet, I'm giving you an entire lecture on this topic. We're spending a week on this, possibly even some uh, week and a half or so. So we're spending a lot of time on this subject, meaning there has to be some controversy. It cannot be so straightforward, otherwise I would merely assign the textbook. So where does the controversy arise? Well, on one hand, that controversy arises because of the split between private and public international law. So public international law, we've been clear, has to do with the actions of states. With private international law, which we barely touched upon, only mentioned in passing, we referred to private actors engaged in transnational, transborder activities. We've mentioned sale of goods, that was one example. Marriages, international marriages, that would be another. These would then fall under the banner of private international law. But then these actors who are party to these international agreements, are they themselves, do they possess international legal personality? Well, that's part of the controversy that we're going to explore shortly. The second reason for the controversy, aside from the split between public and private, a second reason for the controversy has to do with the impact that certain actors, certain entities have on state behavior. And we know that there are some entities that are so powerful, whether politically or economically or morally, that they are so powerful, they wield so much influence that they can change the position of nation states in relation to international law. So an obvious one, we can think then of transnational corporations. Apple was the what, the first trillion dollar company ever. Apple, as in similar to a few other corporations, the size of its economic activity doesn't just rival but dwarfs the economic activity of a number of nation states. They can influence not just domestic legislation, but they can influence international treaties that many nation states will assent to. Shell, that would be another example. Is Amnesty International, does it possess international legal personality? It is a non-governmental organization with offices across the world with significant influence over the activities of a number of international organizations. We know that an international organization is a subject of international law. Well, what about the entity that is influencing the behavior of the international organization? Has anyone here heard of the PLO? Palestinian Liberation Organization? The FARC? Anyone heard of the FARC? Anyone here familiar with Colombia at all? Yes? Right. People's Revolutionary Army? Are these subjects of international law? Do they possess international legal personality? 
frame differently? Does the PLO, does the FARC have any human rights obligations under international law? Well, what are they? These are rebels, revolutionaries, resistance movements. How exactly do we classify them? And based upon the way we classify them, do we bestow upon them international legal personality, meaning rights? and obligations. So we know that all of these actors that I'm referring to, these entities, we know that they play a part in global politics, a significant role in global politics. Again, return to the transnational corporations. They wield influence over subjects of international law. But can they be held to the same legal standards of international law on par with its subjects. Hence that second layer of controversy. And while I was preparing for this week's lectures, I just did a quick library search. It's always useful to just dig around and see the latest work. There's one way of doing it. One is just do a quick search and do from 2017 subjects of international law and see what comes up. And then to actually go then to the stacks and look at the books that have been published on it as well. Often, there are many more that will appear than the ones that you'll get through the search. And what did I find? Books under subjects of international law, specifically. So this was the nature of the book. It was a book on subjects of international law. Non-state actors as subjects of international law. That was one title. Another one, NGOs as subjects of international law. A third one, investors as legal subjects, international investment law, investors as legal subjects. Another one, indigenous peoples as subjects of international law, indigenous peoples. A fifth one, international law, ready, for humankind. International law for humankind. So not just human rights, humankind. So not as individuals but for an entire species. <coughs> Notice the differences in all of those classifications. Non-state actors versus non-governmental organizations versus a species <coughs> versus an investor. How do you even classify an investor? Do I take the title as an investor because I own some shares? What does that mean then in terms of legal personality? So what we're pointing to then is that there is some element of controversy in identifying who possesses legal personality in international law. So, as some of you have already done in the context of this week's seminars and as some of you will do later this week, let us proceed through process of elimination. And let us try now to eliminate those who we know are not, who are not subject of international law. Well, here's my first question to you then. And I'd like you to take a few seconds to reflect on this. Is a nation a subject of international law? So, it's not a trick question. I don't mean a nation state. I'm asking specifically, is a nation a subject of international law? 
Now we refer to it, and you can even return to the very first lectures, inter-nation law. So law between nations. The Iroquois Confederacy, a group of different indigenous peoples in the southeast of Canada and the northeast of the United States. They self-identify as a nation. Are they bound by international law because of that self-identification? Catalonia, any Spaniards or Catalans in the room? If so, don't answer that question. Do they qualify then as a subject if they self-identify as a nation? All right, let's try something a little closer to home. Scotland. Is Scotland a subject of international law? Does Scotland possess international legal personality? Well, let me ask you this. Which entity is in the process of negotiating Scotland's exit from the EU? Well, we know it's not Scotland. So does Scotland possess international legal personality? But they have a football club, a national football club. They compete as an entity at the Olympics. But do they possess international legal personality? Which brings me back to the question, are nations subjects of international law? Confusing, right? Well, let's try this another way. The Roma, this is a people. They possess certain characteristics, cultural characteristics related to language, related to ways norms of behavior related to religiosity is a people a subject of international law does international law only apply to individuals but when we become a group of peoples does it cease to apply to us is it possible for us to possess international legal personality based upon our belonging to a people now, why am I asking this question? Well, we go back to Vittoria and Eustentium. And I refer to this as the law of nations. But in fact, considering the etymology of this word, is that an accurate translation? Gent comes from Gentis. To the French in the room, what does that mean? People. Right. So now we're referring then, if we think of De Vittoria, De Vittoria was not speaking to us about the law of nations. De Vittoria was speaking about the law of peoples. The law of peoples. And this is where it is essential for us to draw the distinction between <coughs> states and peoples. There's an important distinction between the two. Well, a people is a sociological phenomenon. A people is a sociological phenomenon. People band together, people group together based upon a series of shared characteristics. Now, it's one of those chicken or the egg moments. Do they develop those shared characteristics following a certain time of inhabiting, of cohabitation, of inhabiting together? 
Or do they choose to unite because they possess those shared characteristics? But in the end, if we look at the Vittoria, he's taking for granted that these different civilizations that existed, these different peoples, were in possession of certain common characteristics, certain common beliefs. I'll give you an example. Why am I referred to as an Arab? Do I come from Saudi Arabia? I do not. But I am referred to as an Arab. Why? What is the common characteristic of Arabs? They speak Arabic. <coughs> that is it. That is the one characteristic. What is the common characteristic of the English? Haha, <laughs> they have a British accent. They are from England. They are from England. Peoples. So Arabs, we identify a common characteristic and we say it's a linguistic characteristic. Are all Muslims part of a people? Are all Catholics part of a people? Ready? Are all Jews part of a people? Right? Belonging then to different peoples, possibly? But remember what we're trying to do. We're not trying to classify the individual. We're trying to determine the subject of international law. So can peoples then be subjects of international law? Can they possess legal personality? According to Vittoria, yes. He devised this with peoples in mind based upon them coming together with this common characteristic, or these common characteristics. So a people is a sociological phenomenon, but a state is a political configuration. <coughs> sociological phenomenon and political configuration. <coughs> now the reason people bond together as a people is very different for the reasons that you would establish a state. With a state, we are interested in order, on one hand, but also authority on the other. It's about order and authority. Now, in the 20th century, this idea of gentis, Nijon, peoples, all of that was ultimately eclipsed by the nation-state. Even nations started to lose their gloss. The focus was very much on states themselves, but states as distinct political configurations. And on Thursday, we will consider the criteria by which a people becomes a state. But again, as international law is known to do, it creates a type of hierarchy whereby the state becomes superior to all the other ones who lack the criteria for statehood. So while a people, as we said, is a sociological phenomenon, and a state is a political configuration. What international law has ultimately done is to create a singular scale and presented these 
despite how distinct they are, as being relative, relational to one another. And so we understand that a peoples is merely something that has not achieved the status of statehood. It is inferior. It is lacking in some way. And because of that lack, it cannot possess legal personality. Now this is relevant for international law in a number of ways. The first one, and excuse my pronunciation, is related to the principle of uti. Anybody speak Latin who can pronounce this for me? Uti posseditis. Yes? Uti posseditis. The doctrine of uti posseditis. Now what does this doctrine say? <coughs> this doctrine has to do with territory. And the doctrine declares that a territory of a new state, the territory of a new state, is fixed at the moment of independence. The doctrine of a new state is fixed at the moment of independence. Now this doctrine emerged largely in the 19th and 20th century, mostly the 19th, we would say. And it emerged in the 19th century during the process of decolonization. Now recall then, during our history week, we looked at colonialism, right? conquest, a little bit on colonialism, and how some European imperial powers <coughs> conquered many parts of the world. Well, at some point, these people who were conquered were either fighting back or lobbying for their independence. This was a process known as decolonization. Now once they decolonized, what would then remain? Now you would have to understand, conquest and colonization was largely a European phenomenon and conquest happened before the formation of the nation-state. The nation-state only came about following the establishment of the Treaty of Westphalia. So these areas that were conquered were not themselves nation-states. So once the nation-state that had conquered, that had colonized, withdrew from the lands, what remained? If there was no nation-state at the outset, then did it leave a nation-state in its wake? Is that what was left behind? And if so, what would be the borders of that nation-state? What would be the government of that nation-state? Well, what would be the language of that nation-state? Now, I mentioned to you also the Berlin Conference, 1884. I also refer to it as a scramble for Africa. And what you had then was the African continent. Notice then the African continent. What does it look like? It looks very much like a, like a grid. Anyone notice this? Very curious. It looks like a grid. And you say, oh, I wonder how they managed to establish those borders so clearly. So, right? geometrically, how? This is what it looks like. That's mine right there. And that's the shape of it. How did this happen? Scramble for Africa. 
the Berlin Conference, these European powers sat down, took out a ruler and a pencil, and carved out, and then awarded it to each other. So this year went to England, and this year went to France, and this went to France, and this over here went to England, and this went to Italy. And the list goes on and on. So after these nations, these peoples, not exactly sure how to refer to them, once they decolonize, whether in the case of Algeria, wars of independence, they fight the French, or in the case of Egypt, negotiations, mini revolution of sorts, once they leave, what are to be the borders? What is to be the government? How do they engage in relations with others? Well, this is the doctrine of uti, uti posseditis. And it says that at the time of independence, the territory is fixed. Meaning, the lines that were established in 1884 in Berlin are now the legal jurisdiction of each one of these states. International law is trying then to paper over the tension, the conflict that existed as a result of these artificial lines. So anyone familiar with the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea? And the fact that a number of Eritreans happen to live in Ethiopia and a number of Ethiopians happen to live in Eritrea as those that region did not exist as Ethiopia and Eritrea in the way that it was drawn. And so the conflicts then emerge because you have different peoples who are forced to cohabitate. Remember what I said, a sociological phenomenon, people binding together because of shared characteristics. And then now they are bound together as a result of an artificial border. So the international law that applies to them acquires this air of artificiality. It is not something that was endemic to the region or to the peoples. Rather, it was something that was superimposed. Now consider this through the lens of culture. Now I mentioned to you last week when we were looking at the sources, customary international law. And I said customary international law is one of the strongest forms of law. Now why did I make that statement? Well think of laws as the codification of certain norms of behavior. With custom, we are merely looking at the norms that are mediating people's relations that are already in place. They haven't been codified, they haven't been imposed, 
They haven't been constructed. They developed through the practices of these different communities. Customary international law, a general practice, that they regard, that they deem as meriting the status of law. So this is a behavior, this is a practice that everybody already engages in. Which is why customary international law is the easiest one to implement, to codify, because everyone has, everyone is already engaging in it. I'm not imposing anything from above. Contrast this with, say, prohibition in the United States. People already consumed alcohol, and then now we're coming in and putting in place a prohibition and saying you are now prohibited from consuming what is in your cabinet. That is a very difficult law to implement because it goes against the behaviors that are already in place, which is why we refer to law then often as a form of social engineering, where you can use it to transform societies. So as I often point out, no one here would even think about lighting a cigarette where they're sitting now. But if you went back 20 years, that would have been the standard. So you can social engineer, you can impose laws from above, but they just take longer to stick. But recognizing a practice as law is so much easier because people already engage in the practice. Points to one of the challenges then with international law is that because the source is primarily from Europe, it results as an imposition upon the other parts of the world. And then go back to what I said to you before, my favorite phrase, European subjectivity posing as universal objectivity. Most peoples in the world of the worlds did not organize in that political configuration that is now dominant. But international law, because of its link to the Treaty of Westphalia, is built around that specific political configuration. Meaning, and we'll talk more about this on Thursday, it's almost as though the only way for an entity to become, to acquire legal personality in international law, requires it to develop into a nation state. That proves to be the challenge. Now, consider this, and this is what I'll spend the final five minutes on, to bring it back then to this idea of actors. <coughs> if we begin, if our starting point is that sovereignty is a precondition for legal personality, if sovereignty is the precondition for legal personality, then go back to those actors I mentioned to you before, the controversies. Does Apple possess sovereignty? 
Does the Iroquois Confederacy, the Catalan, the Scots, do they possess sovereignty? Are they sovereign? Amnesty International? Is Amnesty International sovereign? <clears throat> of course not. Sovereignty is something that applies to a different political configuration, to a different entity. So it makes no sense. There is no logic in linking sovereignty to legal personality unless the objective is to prohibit anything other than a nation state from obtaining any rights in international law or any obligations. But we know this not to be the case as each and every one of you possesses some rights in international law. But not a single one of you possesses sovereignty. This is one of those, oh my god, moments. So how do you reconcile the two? <coughs> Genuinely, how do we reconcile them? And the answer is, we do not. There is no logical way of reconciling it. This points then to two important lessons related to international law. And then I'll conclude with something else. The first point, the one that I've hammered you over the heads with in seminars and will continue to do so for the next couple of weeks. Legal problems are ill-structured. There are a variety of outcomes that are possible and the outcome depends heavily on the quality of the argument you can make. Law is not mathematics. Law is not physics. There is not a clear-cut answer. International law is very distinct from gravity. It doesn't matter how many times I drop something, it will forever fall. That is the law of gravity. But international law, be careful now, right? Didn't want me grabbing his phone. He knew it was coming. And then Ali was thinking about his laptop as well. But with law, we are dealing then, as we said, with sociology. We are dealing with politics. We are dealing with international relations. So there, the arguments are what win the day. The arguments and the type of evidence you can deploy. So that is the first lesson. The second lesson is that international law itself is dynamic. What we are dealing with are a series of paradoxes. Because international law, as I pointed out to you and as I specified last week, has emerged as a result of, it has different points of origin and has emerged through the consent of certain political entities. And those political entities were often trying to engineer the world in the way that they wanted. But there were other entities out there that were ultimately resisting their efforts. So in the end, it is not as though you had an engineer with a limitless pool of resources 
and a design and a drawing and could say, this is what I want the world to look like. All they had were interests and priorities and partialities and prejudices. And all of these gave shape to international law as it exists today. So of course international law is only going to be made up with paradoxes. Of course aspects of international law will not be logical. Of course they will be contradictory because of the way it has developed. And this brings me then to the final point that I said I wanted to make. <coughs> that bit that I said about international law being dynamic. The titles of the books I mentioned to you are books that have been published in the last couple of years. Because international law is dynamic. So the lecture that I'm giving you to you today on subjects is relevant up until today. I'd venture to say it'll probably be relevant in six months time, but I venture to say that it'll be anachronistic in six years time. Because the international legal system is in flux. It is dynamic, it is growing. And now we have a situation where we have these transnational corporations with very large, colossal amounts of influence <coughs> over the world, but according to international law, no obligations, responsibilities, duties whatsoever. And there are many people that find that state of affairs dissatisfying. Hence then, the arguments that are being made about corporations possessing either legal personality, and if they do, then legal responsibility. But those are merely arguments. And they're arguments that go against much of what modern international law looks like. So we'll talk more about statehood then on Thursday. See you then.